Chapter One of the Book of Werewolves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Fricker. The Book of Werewolves by Sabina Baring Gould. Chapter One Introductory. I shall never forget the walk I took one night in Vienna after having accomplished the examination of an unknown druidical relic the pierre labie at la rondelle near champigny i had learned of the existence of this cromlech only on my arrival at champigny in the afternoon and i had started to visit the curiosity without calculating the time it would take me to reach it and to return suffice it to say that i discovered the venerable pile of grey stones as the sun set and that i expended the last lights of evening in planning and sketching I then turned my face homeward. My walk of about ten miles had wearied me, coming at the end of a long day's posting, and I had lamed myself in scrambling over some stones to the Gaulish relic. A small hamlet was at no great distance, and I betook myself thither, in the hopes of hiring a trap to convey me to the post-house, but I was disappointed. Few in the place could speak French, and the priest, when I applied to him, assured me that he believed there was no better conveyance in the place than a common cheroo with its solid wooden wheels, nor was a riding-horse to be procured. The good man offered to house me for the night, but I was obliged to decline, as my family intended starting early on the following morning. Out spake then the mare. Monsieur can never go back to-night across the flats because of the... the... and his voice dropped the loup-garou. He says that he must return, replied the priest in patois, but who will go with him? Aha, monsieur le curé, it is all very well for one of us to accompany him, but think of the coming back alone. Then two must go with him, said the priest, and you can take care of each other as you return. Picou tells me that he saw the werewolf only this day to-night, said a peasant. He was down by the hedge of this buckwheat field, and the sun had set, and he was thinking of coming home, when he heard a rustle on the far side of the hedge. He looked over, and there stood the wolf as big as a calf against the horizon, its tongue out and its eyes glaring like marsh-fires. Mon Dieu! Catch me going over the marais to-night! Why, what could two men do if they were attacked by that wolf-fiend? it is tempting providence said one of the elders of the village no man must expect the help of god if he throws himself wilfully in the way of danger is it not so monsieur le curé i heard you say as much from the pulpit on the first sunday in lent preaching from the gospel that is true observed several shaking their heads his tongue hanging out and his eyes glaring like marsh-fires, said the confidant of Picou. Mon Dieu! If I met the monster, I should run, quoth another. I quite believe you, Cortez. I can answer for it that you would, said the mayor. As big as a calf, threw in Picou's friend. If the loup-garou were only a natural wolf, why then you see— The mayor cleared his throat. <laughs> You see, we should think nothing of it, but, Monsieur le Curé, it is a fiend, a worse than fiend, a man-fiend, a worse than man-fiend, a man-wolf-fiend. 
but what is the young monsieur to do asked the priest looking from one to another never mind said i who had been quietly listening to their patois which i understood never mind i will walk back by myself and if i meet the loup garou i will crop his ears and tail and send them to monsieur le marie with my compliments a sigh of relief from the assembly as they found themselves clear of the difficulty il est anglais said the mayor shaking his head as though he meant that an englishman might face the devil with impunity a melancholy flat was the marais looking desolate enough by day but now in the gloaming tenfold as desolate the sky was perfectly clear and of a soft blue-gray tinge illuminated by the new moon a curve of light approaching its western bed to the horizon reached a fen blacked with pools of stagnant water from which the frogs kept up an incessant trill through the summer night heath and fern covered the ground but near the water grew dense masses of flag and bulrush amongst which the light wind sighed wearily here and there stood a sandy knoll capped with firs looking like black splashes against the grey sky not a sign of habitation anywhere the only trace of men being the white straight road extending for miles across the fen that this district harboured wolves is not improbable and i confess that i armed myself with a strong stick at the first clump of trees through which the road dived this was my first introduction to werewolves and the circumstance of finding the superstition still so prevalent first gave me the idea of investigating the history and the habits of these mythical creatures i must acknowledge that i have been quite unsuccessful in obtaining a specimen of the animal but i have found its traces in all directions and just as the paleontologist has constructed the labyrinthodon out of its footprints in marl and one splinter of bone so may this monograph be complete and accurate although i have no chained werewolf before me which i may sketch and describe from the life the traces left are indeed numerous enough and though perhaps like the dodo or the dinomis the werewolf may have become extinct in our age yet he has left his stamp on classic antiquity he has trodden deep in northern snows has ridden roughshod over the medievals and has howled amongst oriental sepulchres he belonged to a bad breed and we are quite content to be freed from him and his kindred the vampire and the ghoul yet who knows we may be a little too hasty in concluding that he is extinct he may still prowl in abyssinian forests range still over asiatic steeps and be found howling dismally in some padded room of a hanwell or bedlam in the following pages i design to investigate the notices of werewolves to be found in the ancient writers of classic antiquity those contained in the northern sagas and lastly the numerous details afforded by the medieval authors in connection with this i shall give a sketch of modern folklore relating to lycanthropy it will then be seen that under the veil of mythology lies a solid reality that a floating superstition holds in solution a positive truth this i shall show to be an innate craving for blood implanted by certain natures restrained under ordinary circumstances but breaking forth occasionally accompanied with hallucination leading in most cases to cannibalism i shall then give instances of persons thus afflicted who were believed by others and who believed themselves to be transformed into beasts and who in the paroxysms of their madness committed numerous murders and devoured their victims 
I shall next give instances of persons suffering from the same passion for blood, who murdered for the mere gratification of their natural cruelty, but who were not subject to hallucinations, nor were addicted to cannibalism. I shall also give instances of persons filled with the same propensities, who murdered and ate their victims, but who were perfectly free from hallucination. End of chapter 1 Recording by John Fricker